hey, this is Nola, and you're not listening to Rock Strikes 10. Shame on you. Hey, my name is Chris, whom you may know as the other half of CNJ Radio and from the podcast, The Wrestling House Show and The Last Theater. And I'm here to wish Joey a very happy first 500 episodes of Rock Strikes 10. If you do the math, that's Rock Strikes 5000 right here on this episode that you, dear listener, are about to listen to. I just want to tell Joey to keep doing what you're doing, keep bringing the music for the next 500 episodes until we get to at least Rock Strikes 10,000 in, what, a few years maybe? And for the rest of us, sit back, open your ears, because you are listening to Rock Strikes 10 on cnjradio.com. Hey, this is Mark Striegel from Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation on Sirius XM. Big congratulations to Joey Haney on 500 episodes of Rock Strikes 10, a podcast that I have been a fan of for years. This is Gene Simmons of the rock group Kiss, and you're not. And I'd like to congratulate the great Joey Haney. He was a powerful and attractive man on 500 episodes of pontificating and saying big words like gymnasium on 500 episodes of the Rock Strikes 10 podcast. You know, Joey, it's not too late to be thinking of a, oh, something like a end of the road of the Rock Strikes 10 podcast. You could like, you know, tell everybody that you're going to do an exclusive uh, end of the podcast kind of a thing. And then, you know, revisit that every so often and maybe do the return of the end of the road of the Rock Strikes 10 podcast. You know, just just something to think about, but, you know, you always keep that in your uh, utility belt. Anyway, congratulations on 500 episodes. Keep them coming. As long as it's fun, you do it. And if it feels good, do it. Ow! Hi, my name is Gary Schaller from Podcast, and you are listening to Rock Strikes 10. What's up, everybody? This is Joshua Toomey from the Talk To Me podcast, and you are listening to The Rock Strikes 10. This is Emily Striegel from Talking Metal, and you're listening to The Rock Strikes 10 podcast. Beautiful. This is Chris Riley uh, from across the pond, uh, London, England. Uh, day, mate. <laughs> and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Julian Gill from the Kiss FAQ podcast, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Aaron Camaro from the Decibel Geek Podcast. You're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Kick ass. Hey, this is Paul Taylor of Winger, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is BJ Kahuna from Rock and or Roll, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10 with a name based on a cheap trick song. You can't go wrong, so enjoy. <laughs> Hey, this is Craig Smith from the Pods and Sods Network. You are listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, everybody. This is Paul Stanley, and this is Gene Simmons from KISS. And you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. And guess what? Just for hearing this ID, you owe me $30. Boom. Hey, folks. This is Sam Kennison, and you're listening to the one podcast that gets me up from the dead. It's Rock Strikes 10. You whore! Oh! <laughs> you can't make jokes about the dead, you fucking dicks! Hi, this is Christopher Walken. You're listening to Rock Strikes Ten with dead people like Sam Kennison. Pow! 
Hey, this is Ricky Dover Jr. of The Biters, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10 Podcast. Yow! What's up? This is Tuck from The Biters, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Kelly from The Dolly Rocks, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Oh, yeah! This is Dr. Elisa Tonywatt, and I help save Joey's life. You're listening to Rock Strikes 10. This is Dennis Dunaway of the original Alice Cooper Group, listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Dick Wagner, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Hey, this is Ryan Roxy from the Alice Cooper Band, and you are listening to Rock Strikes 10, whether it's Saturday night or any night of the week. What's up, everybody? It's Glenn Sobel from the Alice Cooper Band, and you are listening and rocking out to Rock Strikes 10. Check it out. Hi, this is Nita Strauss from the Alice Cooper Band, and you're listening to Rock Strikes 10. Turn it up. What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rock Strikes 10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, it's been a little bit of a wait, a little over a 10-year wait. No, I'm just kidding. This episode, period, took a couple of weeks, and I apologize, but I'm back And with a vengeance, it is episode number 500, and I'm finally going to do the theme that I've been thinking about doing or threatening to do ever since episode one. Yes, I'm going to do, for a lack of a better term, my top 10 Desert Island albums. Here's the asterisk in front of that. These are strictly studio albums. No best ofs, no live albums, no box sets. I actually plan on doing a list for each one of those things down the road, but as studio albums go, these are my 10 current slash all-time favorites. In anticipation of this episode, I'm taking it very seriously, and I just hope that you enjoy it out there, and if you're a first-time listener, thanks for tuning in. Apparently, you like Strangers Best Of Lists. Or if you're a longtime friend of the show, and especially if you're a day one friend of the show, thank you so very much. You know who you are, and I love you. I'm sure I'm going to go over things that meant a lot to me throughout my life as a music fan. So I'll do it as I go. I'll throw some stuff in the front here just in case I miss it. 
as a guy that likes to try to get attention by talking into a microphone, all that influence starts as being a kid listening to the radio. I want to thank these things for having some sort of influence on me throughout that journey, starting with whatever top 40 stations I was listening to in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My first best friend, Sean George, who turned me on to some great music. I'm sure I will talk about him throughout this episode. KEYJ, Key Rock, AM Radio in Abilene, Texas, a knockoff Z-Rock, the actual real deal Z-Rock out of Dallas, the 90s era of KEGL in Dallas, the early, early pre-grunge days of The Edge, 94.5 in Dallas, Q102 Dallas throughout the 90s, then we get into some of my favorite radio personalities, of course, Howard Stern, Russ Martin, and my podcasting influences and friends, Mark Striegel, Michael Butler, Ken Mills, Gary Schaller, and just some of the podcasting friends I made along the way after I started doing this show. Lucen Baco of Cobras and Fire, BJ of Rock and or Roll, Kevin Williams of In Obscuria, and a few others, yes. So that's a quick short intro. Let's get into the first entry here on my Desert Island list. I'm going to try to do the musical journey thing. I'm going to talk a lot on this episode, so if you like the long talking episodes, then you're going to love this one. If you are listening for the first time, I normally don't talk this much. I hope you enjoy the music. So as we get into this list, I got to tell you right up front, full disclosure, I had eight locked in titles prior to even approaching this episode. I've always had pretty much the same eight records on my list. As I started to do this, I thought I had nine and then one fell off. It was a whole thing and it almost broke me. But what I decided to do is, of course, keep the locked in eight. And for the other two entries, what I decided to do was I grabbed one favorite album from each of the last two decades to where I think these are my favorites of said decade, aughts and the tens. And that's the best way I think I could do it at this point, because also I wanted to have representation of something that happened in this century. Just seems kind of weird and odd to not include anything like that. Yeah, I I understand that I grew up and also attended school through the previous part of time throughout the 80s and 90s. But I just wanted to have something post 2000 on there. So I put two entries on there for that. They're no less important. I listened to these quote unquote newer titles a lot and feel very comfortable putting them in a list such as this to make it official right now. So the first two things I'm going to play are from the last two decades. Let's start in with what pretty much came in at my favorite record. If you listen to the top 100 albums of the last decade show that I did, or multiple shows that I did, then this one pretty much tied with something else. But I'm going with this one right now to put on my Desert Island list to also represent one of my favorite bands of all time, Whether it's on record or on stage, this is one of my top bands. So this band is my favorite of the quote-unquote Big Four. And they've always been my favorite of the four. I've, you know, gone in and out of the other bands where I've, like, really had moments with them. And I still love all those bands, but I've never really ever fallen out with Anthrax. And more often than not, they never really let me down, as other bands have just... And we'll say Slayer aside on the studio album front, Megadeth and Metallica have had moments where it's just like, ugh. Moments where it's pretty much impossible to defend them. And despite putting out a so-so record in Stomp 442 in the 90s, Anthrax has rarely ever let me down. I've always been proud to be a fan of that band. 
And if you go see them, whether they're headlining or opening for some band that they're better than, and that's a fact, they're going to destroy it and steal the show every single time. And as I've realized over the last decade, this is my favorite Anthrax record. If you heard my Anthrax Rock and Rank special, you know that this is not headlines. But in 2011, they finally, finally put out their long-awaited record, Worship Music, which was also a return of Joey Belladonna into the band. And for a guy that absolutely loved, especially loved, the last two John Bush records in Volume 8 and We've Come For You All, We've Come For You All almost could have easily been in this Desert Island list as well. So that album came out, what, 2003? Had to wait eight years for this record. They recorded and re-recorded this album multiple times with multiple singers. There's a whole backstory about that. I want to say that it went through four different singers, if I have it right. John Bush, that guy Dan Nelson that came and went in the band. Corey Taylor, apparently, was about to take a shot at one point on it. And maybe had, I'm not sure. And Joey, and I think Joey was early on the sessions. He was out. And then those other three singers tried it. And then all of a sudden he came back for the final sessions. They finalized the lineup with Joey Belladonna back in the band, which seems like a sort of a compromise to have a reunion and make more money and stuff like that. And even if it was, got some freaking gold out of it. Joey sounds great on this record, even if he didn't have a lot of participation in the songwriting. He owns it when he sings it, and the band is on fire. And thankfully, even though this material was just labored over and over and over again, it doesn't sound labored like a lot of other albums do when they take a long time to put out. So this was one of those anticipated albums that did not let down, and definitely didn't let me down. And to set up the song I'm going to play to represent this, it's kind of an oddball pick, honestly. So I did that thing where got it day of and especially in the last decade of course struggling to find a place that would have a physical copy of it day of so i could enjoy it day of and i i do recall this was one of the real first major releases that i did the amazon thing with i had to i had to have it day it came out thankfully it showed up the day it came out and i believe this came out the same day as alice cooper welcome to my nightmare the sequel so I had a big night where it was just me to myself and I sat down and did the booklets for both records and I did the Anthrax one last because I just had a feeling that that one wasn't going to let me down and I was going to really enjoy it. I just had that feeling. Thankfully I was right, went through the whole thing and I was just excited about how good it was, thinking about how cool it was going to be to go see them live with this lineup and hear this material and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there and thinking the album's over. All of a sudden, I see that the clock is still ticking on the iPod. Yes, what I did was put it in the computer, ripped the MP3 files over to the iPod, sat down, put the headphones on, and listened to it that way, which at that point was the modern-day equivalent of putting it on vinyl and putting it on your headphones and just getting into the record. So I was doing that, and I noticed that, oh, yeah, the clock's still going. Oh, bonus track, little ghost track maybe. And and who knew with Anthrax, they I was used to them doing teases at the end of their records. On the previous album, on, on We've Come For You All, there was just like a little instrumental like noise, background stuff, went on for a minute, and that was it. Like some tribal stuff. And then all of a sudden, I'm kind of just doing the quick fast forward, you know, 15 second, whatever. And all of a sudden, I hear this guitar riff start up, and I was like, oh man, because I had read that they had covered this song 
but I never thought that they would cover it while Joey was in the band. I just figured this was one of those songs that was going to be for that guy, Dan Nelson. And since he didn't work out, I never thought this cover would surface at all. Happy that I was wrong about that because it closes out the record as a ghost track. And the only way you can get it now, you need to have the physical CD or get the, I think it's the Nuclear Blast double vinyl version. It has the last official song on there, which is a cover of Refused New Noise from The Shape of Punk to Come. Another one of my favorite albums of all time, which I struggled not putting that on my Desert Island list as well. So I figured, hey... To kind of represent both things, I'll just play this track. And I gotta say, this is a great way to kick off a show. Could also end the show perfectly as well. But here you go to represent my first pick here on my Desert Island list from Anthrax Worship Music. This is New Noise. Turn it up. <laughs> Anyone to listen if we're using the same 
All right, kicking off the show today and kicking off my Desert Island episode, that was Anthrax doing a cover of Refused's New Noise, originally from The Shape of Punk to Come. Go get that record, but also get it off of Worship Music, that particular version. Musically, that version is spot on perfect, note for note, everything. But the thing that makes it a really great cover on top of all that is that with Joey Belladonna singing it, as opposed to the guy from Refused, it's just two different animals. In this version, you can absolutely tell what the lyrics are. And, you know, I love the screaming and everything on the Refused version, but it's a different version. You can't really understand what the hell is being said, but the energy is great. It's perfect. But I love both versions, and I just wanted to kick off the show with something special, something like that. And I will say officially that album Worship Music came out on September 12th, 2011, co-produced by Rob Caggiano, who was their second guitar player at the time. Then eventually he wound up moving over to Volbeat. And Jay Rustin, who makes great sounding records. Great engineer, great producer, great set of ears. And look no further than the next album, probably my favorite album of the 2000s decade, the next entry here. And you'll find Jay Rustin's name as the producer on this record as well. So good on you, Jay Rustin. Wow, I did not see that one coming. I don't look at the credits when I make these kind of lists in advance, so it's kind of cool to see his name once again here. For this album that came out on September 18th, 2007, throughout my entire adult music life, this band has been one of my favorite bands ever. This was their seventh studio album, and unfortunately, as of this recording, still their final record. And I constantly have fantasies while I'm awake of this band getting back with it and being a pivotal player in rock history of all time. They've always had the chops, they've always had the songs, they've always had just the entire package to go with it. Seen them multiple times live, and it's always the best show I see every time. But yes, the Donnas, their album Bitchin' right here, I'm putting here in my Desert Island list. And I love so many of their records, like I pretty much love all their records for the most part. I might have just as easily could have put on Turn 21, which was my favorite album of 2001. Or hell, even Spend the Night, which is their most popular album. Not hating on that album. It sold the best out of any of their catalog. And it's a great top-to-bottom rock and roll album. Not a bad song on it. Bitchin' is my personal favorite. It's definitely classic Donna's, but it's got a sense of all-time classic rock going on with it. The sound on this record is huge. It's got a huge rock sound. It sounds like an album that should be played at a party in a cooler time in history. And yeah, from the second I put it on, I was like, this album is going to rule. And it does. I love every song on it. And if you long to own this record on vinyl, I'm going to tell you a story that's going to really piss you off. But, you know, back in the latter part of the 2000s, they were, you know, I was checking their whatever it was, MySpace, social media, whatever at the time. It was probably MySpace. They put up a post about how they had a sale going on on their website. And I looked on the website and they were like, they were selling the bitchin' vinyl album, the double purple vinyl album for five bucks. No shit, right? And with a download. And the thing I knew about the vinyl is like, well, of course, I gotta have it. But also, the vinyl is different. It's got a different track listing, track order, and extra songs on it. And it's not just like songs tacked on at the end. It's within the album. So the order on the vinyl, that version makes sense to me as well. And I highly recommend at least finding maybe a playlist of that order. It's great. 
Yeah, so my official entry reads as the 17-track version of Bitchin' by the Donnas is what's making my Desert Island, because I'm not leaving without those three extra songs, because they're great. One of them even being a hard rock and cover of the Safety Dance. You got to hear it. It's great. But I'm not going to play that, and I'm not going to play any of the bonus songs, kind of like I did with the last one. I'm going to play this one right here. I actually did hear the launch single prior to owning the record. Of course, anybody that hears it with ears recognizes that it's got a lot attributed to Joan Jett's I Hate Myself for Loving You, but they do make it their own. Uh, Speaking of Joan Jett, I know she used a lot of song doctors throughout her career. Holly Knight, one of the all-time Hall of Fame song doctors, co-wrote two songs on this album, just to add to the awesome 80s imaging of the whole thing. But if this song doesn't grab you, then I don't know what to tell you. You're probably listening to the wrong show at this point. And it's almost too late to turn back now. So here you go from Bitchin'. This is the Donna's with Don't Wait Up For Me. Turn it up.
Yeah, I saw them twice on that tour, both times at the House of Blues, and it was just so great. They opened up with the intro song on the record and went slamming right into that one right there, Don't Wait Up For Me. Just makes me think of going to see them. So glad I got to see them on that tour, which unfortunately proved to be their last run. Please come back and save rock and roll, Don, as we need you more than ever now. Yeah, and also both times that I saw them, they covered Round and Round by Rat. And Allison actually can play both of the solos live without fail. Note for note, the Robin and Warren solos by herself. So not only is that pretty good for a girl, it's pretty good for Rambo as well. All right. So from 80s-inspired hard rock to actual 80s hard rock, we move over to this record right here. I've long credited this album as the first album that I ever owned. And I had other albums before this, but it's kind of like when people talk about their first concerts. Like, they'll talk about the first one that they're actually going to admit to going to see, as opposed to the ones that maybe their parents dragged them to, or going to see Sesame Street Live, and I saw that as well. But, like, as far as, like, an album that was mine that I didn't share with my sister, that wasn't like an album that was targeted towards children, this was it for me. I got this album for Christmas in 1984, and I'm still shocked that I got to keep it. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. So yes, this album from Pop Rock's Greatest Year, 1984, is by Twisted Sister. Their third studio album, Stay Hungry, produced by the great Tom Worman, who did a lot of great rock albums. Albums that I struggled to not put on this list as well, but Stay Hungry is a big record for me in a lot of ways. One of my gateway albums going towards more being a hard rock slash heavy metal fan. It was this record and Metal Health, which I can't believe isn't on this list, but it'd definitely be in the top 20 at this point as of recording time. So just love it, everything about it. I know every note of this record, so much so that when I was really getting serious about learning how to play the guitar and realizing I was a rhythm guy and not a solo guy... I learned how to play all the way through this album without stopping. So I can play all the rhythm guitar on this record and a couple of solos. I can actually play the solo to where I'm going to take it and the solo to the song I'm about to play that I won't spoil for right now. But yes, I mean, you got We're Not Going to Take It and I Want to Rock on the same album. Two of the greatest hard rock anthems ever, 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 ever. They just are. I've long said that Dee Snyder is one of the greatest frontmen of all time, not just heavy metal and hard rock, but of all time in any genre at any time or any generation ever. He's that good. I've seen him bring it in front of 40 people and 40,000 people, and he does the same show, and it's great. The band sounds great on this. It's just Twisted Sister was a perfectly assembled band for that time period and a perfect mix of like the punk rock approach and the heavy metal approach. Just another thing to love about this particular album. And I think this happens again later on on this Desert Island list, but as far as records I'm talking about today, this is the first one that I have actually seen played live top to bottom as well. So yet another special moment I had with this record. So yeah, further proof that Rock Strikes 10 is a weird show and not like a lot of other shows. (laughs) I'm going with this one right here because this actually is really tied for first in a three-way tie with all the other two singles going with the third single the failed single the song that should have been huge it's a power ballad and it's just a great song it's a perfectly written song with a realistic message and as negative as it seems it's very inspirational as well to me so here you go this is twisted sister 
with The Price. I've always thought that that song was a precursor to Weezer's Say It Ain't So. Listen to it again and then listen to that song and tell me that it's not. I feel like there is some inspiration from it as it pertains to Say It Ain't So. I definitely feel like 
they heard that record a lot. Okay, but that's just my theory. If I ever do meet Rivers Cuomo, I'm totally going to ask him that question, and hopefully he won't think that I'm super weird. I think he, we, might, we might actually have a moment, a shared moment, I think, if that ever happens. But also, I want to give a shout-out to the great Pete LaRusso, my friend Pete LaRusso, because I actually got that audio from him, because it just kind of seems wrong still to this day to not be listening to that record on vinyl. And that's straight from his vinyl rip of the OMR recording pressing from a couple of years ago. And I have one as well, but he's got the technology to do that. So thanks, Pete, for sending that over and for sending over a version that I can listen to that sounds just like listening to Stay Hungry on vinyl, because I love that kind of shit. Yeah, and let's keep the trend going. I'll recommend other albums by these bands as I go. I did that for the first two. And of course, definitely with Twisted Sister, easy enough. Go check out their first two records, Under the Blade and You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Those are perfect metal albums as well. Hard rock, metal, pop metal, whatever you want to call it. Those are perfect albums for whatever it is that you like to call it out there. And also, I do like Come Out and Play. I recognize that there is a drop-off in quality from Stay Hungry to Come Out and Play, but I am mega, mega nostalgic for that record. Almost anything that a major band put out between 1984 and 1986 is pretty much law with me, no matter how good or bad it's perceived as. That's just me. There you go, a carryover from episode 499. I like to do that as well. Speaking of my friend Pete LaRussa, I know he's a fan of this next band as well. This is the album that definitely turned me from a casual observer to a big fan. And this is one of those bands that shared with me and a lot of other people on whether it be their own Desert Island lists or critics lists. This is just one of those shared things that we have where... If we ever have that moment where we're all just like, fuck you and your opinion, fuck you and your opinion, I can say the name of this record and I feel like it will immediately come to a halt. It's one of those albums, like What's Going On, you know, or Pet Sounds or Abbey Road or whatever, that we can be like, yes, we all love this record. We can agree on this. Fuck everything else. We can agree on something like this at least. This is one of those albums that's on a lot of those lists and I feel is not overrated. And I'll trash overrated records all day that I see on those lists all the time. Stop insisting on these things that aren't nearly as good as records like this. You gotta still have standards. Okay, anyway. So this album came out as I was about nine months old on December 14th, 1979. Produced by a guy named Guy. Guy Stevens. (laughs) Who I don't know anything about, although I probably should. This record right here, the first double album, but not the last that appears on my list, London Calling by The Clash. So my moment with this record really occurred uh, sometime when I was going to high school, towards the end for sure, and I had seen the movie Gross Point Blank and bought the soundtrack because I loved it. It had 80 stuff on it that I heard and stuff that I hadn't heard yet. And it leaned a little more hip and cool, but also a little more punk rock and a little ska and stuff like that. Stuff that I was really starting to get into a lot at that point. And I believe the second song on the soundtrack is the song I'm going to play here to represent London Calling. I heard this song and I just couldn't stop listening to it. It was fun, vibrant. wasn't what I expected from The Clash. So buying London Calling as my first Clash record gave me an idea of what they were trying to say at the time that... They have a lot of influences and want to do a lot of things. Their first two albums are pretty much, you know, straight up punk rock, quote unquote. And those are very good records as well. I'd recommend the first album especially. Give Them Enough Rope is pretty good. 
London Colony is kind of perceived as the perfect album and bridge gap between all their influences. Sandinista is where they have the artistic follow-up and they go off the rails, but I love Sandinista. It's more great than not, let's just say. But getting back to London Calling, I remember this was like one of the only days I ever skipped school, like ever. And I didn't really do much in the way of like doing something wrong other than skipping school. And I just, I probably went to the mall, went to the arcade, went to Best Buy. And when I was at Best Buy, I bought a couple of CDs. So for the first time ever, I had bought and heard these records on the same day. Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges, which I can't believe is now on this list as well, and London Calling. So that was a good music day for old Joey and a big, important day as far as helping influence me to like a lot of other things. And also just great records to have playing in the car all the time. So I'm always going to love London Calling and like I said, it's our shared record that I share with the world. And that's cool. And in case you haven't heard this song, check this one out. Still my favorite song from an album that will give you a lot of things to like. This is Rudy Can't Fail. Okay. 
All right, there's a cold cup of coffee by The Clash. Rudy Can't Fail from London Calling, their double album. Which, the other thing I remember about that record, long before I ever heard it, and I was talking about shared things with you know, critics and hipsters and whatever and cool people sharing this record with them. Definitely the weirdest thing that ever happened to this record was the fact that Rolling Stone named it the best album of the 80s. They did a top 100 albums of the 80s. I remember this issue because I had it back in the day, back in 1990 when it came out. And I obsessed over it because I was just curious to learn things at that point. And I was like, I've never heard, I've hardly even heard of The Clash besides a few songs, much less this album that I've never even seen, I don't think, in the stores at all. <laughs> so I thought that was super weird. It didn't chart, it didn't sell that great, but it was the number one album on Rolling Stone's top 100 albums of the 80s. Also, technically, it didn't even come out in the 80s. As I said, before I played that song, it came out mid-December 1979. There you go. Another reason to, I guess, make fun of Rolling Stone, which uh, I never hesitate to do that. But moving on here, this next one right here, speaking of weird ideas, so this album that I'm putting on my Desert Island list was an album that was always actually kind of more of a legend than an album. It was an unreleased album for the longest time. So here's my journey with this record. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, we're going to talk about Smile by the Beach Boys. Yes, I can't let an episode go by without playing the Beach Boys at this point. I do not apologize for this, but if it bums you out, I don't know what to tell you. But in case you haven't heard of The Legend of Smile, I, I will not bore you with all of the details, which I find fascinating, but I'll just tell you kind of how I approached it. I'll do the personal history. So, like a lot of other kids my age, I was raised on the Beach Boys oldies, their best of, their, you know, whatever's on Endless Summer. Those are the songs I was raised on. And never heard anything outside of that. Despite my old man, the guy that claimed to be my father. Despite him having, I think, every Beach Boys album, because I remember those twofers that had the cool records on them that I found out later were the really cool records. Like anything that happened between 67 and 72. Those things. He had all of those. I never heard one stitch off of those records because it's quite possible if I had, I'd have been like, neat, what's that? But I never heard those. So apparently my old man collected baseball cards and just played the same fucking Jimmy Buffett record over and over again. But getting back to me, <laughs> so Smile was supposed to be the big follow-up to Pet Sounds, which Pet Sounds didn't even sell that good either. But it had a couple of hit singles going for it that were tacked onto it like Sloop John B and people seem to like Golly Knows but that's more in retrospect honestly the record kind of tanked but it, you know as far as an artistic statement it was like oh wow listen to that you know people like the Beatles heard that record and went and recorded Sgt. Pepper right after that to try to catch up so Pet Sounds is important even though it's stiff in America it didn't even go platinum until 1990 it didn't even get certified at all so Smile was supposed to follow up Sgt. Pepper in an alternate universe where it comes out. I have no idea what kind of impact it had on pop culture or what it would have. I, I, I almost want to say I was probably too weird for public consumption. Like, if Pet Sounds didn't do well, then Smile probably wasn't doing well at all. Who knows, man? With the culture shifting, the Vietnam War, a lot more drugs and free love, 
Maybe Smile is the ultimate classic of all time that never happened. I just don't know. And all we can do is speculate and theorize and all that fun stuff. But as a guy that had a major rebirth with Beach Boys fandom in the early 2000s, one day I'm just, you know, working at CD Warehouse and someone brings in one of those two-for-one CDs and I put it on. And thankfully it was the Smile, Smile, Wild Honey twofer. And I was like, man... This is out there. So I just kept listening to it over and over and over again. And then I got into reading the booklet and reading other articles and being like, oh, so Smiley Smile is what Smile was kind of supposed to be, but it really wasn't. So I became fascinated with this record that I couldn't hear. And I wasn't doing like illegal downloading. So I didn't really have a way of getting a copy of Smile. Apparently there was one out there that the fans had put together and impressed it on vinyl and made bootleg CDs with it. Thankfully, I ran into a co-worker from a different location who was also a Beach Boys fan. He made me a CDR of the fan version of Smile. I listened to that obsessively, whether I was in the car or at home or whatever. I was just I was listening to it all the time, also whilst listening to all the other two-for-ones from 67 to 72. So I was a big fucking Beach Boys nerd in the year 2000, which is probably the least cool thing. Story of my life. Okay. But... Fast forward 2004, Brian Wilson finally decides to reapproach Smile, and he does a solo album version of it with his current touring band. Sounds really cool. It's not as cool as the bootleg, but it's still really cool because it also gave way to the fact that he tours and plays the album top to bottom during a three-set show. Yes, that's the other album I've seen played top to bottom on this list. Bragging. And then after 2004, fast forward to 2011, where Capitol finally decides and other people involved to put out a box set of these Smile Sessions. And that's what the box set is called officially, the Smile Sessions. But within that, there is basically a version of Smile, the one that would have come out in what is perceived to be the official track list order that it would have been. So now there's an official one for people to enjoy that has all the Beach Boys on it, as opposed to just Brian Wilson. I love both. So there you have it. It's more so just about the fascination of this lost album. And yes, the lore carries a lot of it probably, but it's definitely to me a testament to how much you can push your art and all that other kind of stuff that we talk about when we theorize about music. But the music on it is definitely one of the exhibit A's that I would point to as why people call Brian Wilson a genius. Of course, he can write a pop tune and a love song and he's a great arranger. But the stuff he did here on the Smile record is just, it's beyond description. So I, even if you are not a Beach Boys fan, I'd implore you to listen to that album and a handful of others if you got the time. Feel free to message me. But until now, I'm going to play, which is basically like the intro piece to the Smile album. Now, after the Our Prayer vocal acapella intro thing, it goes into this thing right here, which leads into Heroes and Villains. And I'm going to put the intro part of G, which is a Crows cover, uh, that goes slamming right into heroes and villains. And that's going to be what I have here to represent the album. So I figured it's a decent handshake into the record. I almost went with Cabin Essence, which is like the halfway point. But I feel like you got to warm up to that because it's really out there. So let's go with this. The perceived would be single off of Smile had it come out. The one that was going to follow up the million selling good vibrations. And I think it's also strong in its own right. So here you go. Here's G going in to heroes and villains representing the smile album and another entry in my desert island list enjoy <laughs> 
afraid of what a doodle do in a town full of heroes and a
I definitely did not cheat and play two songs because, I mean, that's an intro at best, the G going into Heroes and Villains. But I hope you enjoyed that. You know, you, some of you may have heard that. Some of you may not have. Either way, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. Saw Al Jardine and family and friends a few weeks ago, which was on Al's 80th birthday that night. And he did not say it on stage. Uh, the bass player had to get on the mic real quick after the show was over and announced that it was his birthday. And then I found out the day after it was his 80th. I was like, holy hell. So I saw Al Jardine with Nola on his 80th birthday. And whilst he did perform Vegetables from Smile, much to the confusion and laughter of a lot of people in the crowd, it was just, just freaking old boomers that showed up to hear Help Me Rhonda for the most part. But, you know, you could tell there was a couple of hardcore fans there, as there always is. But, yeah, it was a good night out going to see Al and his son, Matt, who's in his band, has been in his band for a long time. And they also play with Brian. But it was it was a good night out. And just hearing something off a of smile was tremendous. And just hearing some other stuff off of these great albums like Holland and stuff like that. But yeah, that's a recent story, so I figured I'd throw that one in as well. Like I said, I saw the Smile Show with Brian Wilson in 2004. He played three sets that night, and for a guy who apparently doesn't like to tour, playing almost like three hours, including the Smile record and a bunch of fan favorites before that, that is one of the best shows I've ever seen, period. Moving on to some of the other best shows I've ever seen, and two of these band shows, actually more than two of these band shows are some of my all-time favorites. The last time I saw them might be the best, but I did see them on said tour here for my desert island entry this goes back to my blanket statement that i've always said this is the album that got me through high school so the album that gets you through high school should definitely be on your goddamn desert island list i will never accept anything less out of anybody who comes on the show future reference you got to put it in there okay but mine is one that i actually didn't buy right away when it came out and i resisted this band for so long like annoyingly i resisted him because i was like it, it, it went back to the nirvana thing where i resented them like a lot of other people did but i wasn't some old dude trying to get laid or something and was like how come i can't get laid listening to poison or motley crew i mean i guess there was a little bit of that but i just thought hey you know we all like loud guitars why can't we all get along that's really where i was at with it but once this band came along, there was this finally my bridge gap into, hey, some of this stuff's all right, and why are you trying to resist this? I remember actually I, I, being a radio kid forever, and I still am, a, you know, hitting the serious up a lot daily. But I remember realizing early on that interesting things happen on the radio when people aren't listening. Now, some people may say that the boring stuff happens when people aren't listening. And yes, of course, your public affairs hour is going to be on at that point, too. But when it comes time to stuff like Rockline and whatever album release party is going on, like you tune in on the prime time to late night hours. And that's where I got to hear a lot of cool stuff. So I'm tuning in one random night, fall of 1995, and... All of a sudden I tune in and I just hear crowd noise. I don't hear a band playing or talking. I don't hear a DJ come in to try to be like, well, we're setting up here. I just hear crowd like, and I'm just like, huh? So I'm curious. I stay tuned in. And all of a sudden this guy comes on and drops an F-bomb, talks about how the lights just went out and the power in the building just went out and blah, blah, blah. We're going to get this thing happening. And then they go slamming into this super heavy song. And I immediately recognize the voice. I'm like, wow, this band sounds like this? 
huh, or they're about to sound like this. And it was the Smashing Pumpkins. I was tuned in to their album release for Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which I'm assuming occurred sometime around October 24th, 1995, which is the album's official release, co-produced by Billy Corgan, Alan Mulder, and Flood. So I'm listening to this album release party, and I'm like, man, this sounds really good. And I had heard Bullet with Butterfly Wings, and that was really the last, like, piece of resistance. <laughs> See what I did there? But uh, as far as, like, just not digging this band or pretending like I didn't, because I had heard some of those singles from Siamese Dream, and they're definitely undeniable. I was stupid to not get in at that point. But it was a little bit of like, oh, these fucking kids, you know, wearing ironic t-shirts and making my shit not cool. So I finally gave up on that. I was like, man, these guys freaking rock. And then, of course, learning later on that Billy's like a hard rock historian and stuff like that. You know, it just makes it easier. But yes, Melancholy, once I finally bought it a few months later, (laughs) it was off to the races. And I I really had a lot of what we call nowadays immersion with this record. So I decided like, I'm really going to invest in this. You know, if I can't become a fan of this band, if the way I did it here, if I wasn't going to be a fan, then I was never going to be a fan. So what I did was I just listened and I bought it on double cassette first. I I did the CD later. I upgraded to that later or graduated. So I just listened to that first tape over and over again and didn't even touch the second one. And there were singles coming out for that. I think 1979 is on tape two. But I just listened to that first one over and over again. And the idea was I was going to listen to it as long as I could to where I couldn't take it anymore and then start listening to the second one like it was a whole new record. So it worked out well for me and I really enjoyed that experience. So that's what I did with it. And like I said, I just buried myself in this record and of course bought the Aeroplane Flies High box, which that, that's the neat bit on Melancholy. It's 28 songs proper on the whole double album and it has 28 B-sides to match it. This is one of those moments, and I'm sure Billy had that moment like Prince did with Purple Rain where you knew you were at the zenith and you could never top it after that. So just go full bore at that point. Why not, right? But yeah, this is a great record. And I recently saw, I think Consequence had this listed in the top 100 albums of all time. Rightfully so. Too low, uh, for my opinion. But I will say I'm glad to see it on the list. And I think the write-up on it said something to the effect of, with all due respect to 1979, it might be like the seventh or eighth best song on the record. And I agree with that, because there's so many good songs on this. And this is the really the only entry in my whole playlist here for this episode where I struggled to pick the song, because there's so many good ones. Let's say you ignore the singles. I'm still struggling here. There's stuff that is like super beautiful, almost brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. And I spent all this money. And <laughs> and then stuff that just rocks and just pushes the envelope of like Sonics, Guitar Sonics, the tone on this. If you love guitar tone, it's a perfect album and that, for that reason as well. Uh, so I, I just don't know. But I just said, you know, whenever I get to record this episode, I'm going to look at the track list and just go, what is my favorite song of this record today? And I'm picking this one right here. It's a mid-tempo song. It's got a little bit of the soft, beautiful stuff. It's got a little bit of the heaviness to it. It's got a killer guitar solo on it as well. It's got killer tone. So it's a nice best of both worlds, I guess, for this album. So here you go. This is the song I'm going to choose to represent one of my all-time favorite albums and a double on top of it, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness. This is Here Is No Why.
And if you're listening to the record proper, that's when it goes slamming right into Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Right after that, I mean, it's a fucking perfect record. Yeah, it's weird not even hearing it now to my ears. But yes, that was Here Is No Why by the Smashing Pumpkins off of the first disc or first tape. Or I think side, I think we're still on side one on the vinyl. I, I don't I don't know. I, I do have all formats. But yes, hope you enjoyed that. Of course, I mean, freaking Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah, I was, I was texting with my friend Steve, friend of the show, and uh, talking about how great Jimmy Chamberlain is. Yes, he is the best living drummer right now. And it's always better when he's there. I've seen Pumpkins without him, and they're very, very good. Jimmy is definitely a difference maker as far as just watching how effortlessly good he is. It's, it's annoying. It's so obnoxious. But yeah, Jimmy's great, and he's got great roles on that particular song he sticks out on the song jelly belly as well it's just man yeah there you go billy corgan one of my favorite albums of all time and one of my current favorite pro wrestling promoters in the world all right and if you know me you know that to be a true statement so this next one right here and we're kind of going in order this is kind of my order it's i want to say no order but if i was i I put it together like this is the order i didn't say that up front but hey there you go and all hell, so I've, I have been talking about other notable releases from these bands that I've been talking about. I missed out on the Pumpkins real quick. Of course, yeah, Siamese Dream, I did mention that. That's great. And everything they did on that run before they broke up, you know, I really like Adore. Machina was great. And the other one you definitely shouldn't sleep on is Oceania. Man, that record is so good. It's one of the most absolutely underappreciated albums of the last decade you should definitely hear it and that volume one shiny and oh so bright record is really good it's super short it's like 30 minutes but it's great there's not a really a bad note on it so check out all those records okay let's get into this one right here this is a weird story this is definitely another one of those critical favorites i think it's always on some of these lists rightfully so it should always be higher in my opinion very much so Another one of those records that was a commercial failure and people came around to it finally at some point. It took about three years for most people to come around to it. But I get to claim that I was day one on this mother and I'll tell you why. And it happened very randomly. So let's flash back to Joey here. 
I am all of 10 years old here in the year 1989. And it's, it's a weird time in the Joey household. My parents are getting divorced, which like I said, my old man wasn't around anyway. So it didn't really matter to me. You know, it was a lot harder on my mom than it, def- than it was on me and my sister. But in the summer of 89, it was actually a really good time in our household overall, I believe it to be, because he was already moved out. And we were going on a family vacation, just me, my mom, and my sister. It was probably a, a day or so away from going out. And here's the thing. We were living in Abilene at the time, which is three hours from where I live right now. So three hours away from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Living in Abilene. And for our vacation, we're coming up to Arlington, Texas, which is about 10 minutes from where I live currently. But the whole idea... I found out later my mom was scouting locations to move out to. But as far as we were concerned, we were going to get to go to Six Flags and Wet n Wild and stay in a fun hotel for like a week with HBO. And I was like, hell yeah, man, sign me up. Because I, when you're 10 years old, man, you could do anything. And going to Six Flags and Wet n Wild multiple days uh, for an entire week and then going to Lake Dallas later to see one of her friends and then freaking boogie board ski on the water. Hell yeah, that was still probably my favorite vacation ever, if I had to say. But I set up all that to tell you that the day before we went out of town, and this is <laughs> totally a different time, right? So at any point, like if I if my mom was going to the grocery store to get groceries or the mall to get some other kind of clothes or supplies, then at some point, inevitably, probably to my suggestion, I would be deposited somewhere that I would want to shop at, unattended. And when it came to the mall, it was always definitely the music store. I, I think we had a music land, not a Sam Goody, but a music land. And I was given, you know, probably $10. And she was like, go buy a new tape and go buy something for the trip. I don't know if I asked to get a new tape. I probably did. But it was just one of those things where it's like, okay. And this was also the same visit where I realized that vinyl records were going away. It was really weird because... My whole thing was that I was going to buy a vinyl record and then copy it on the cassette and then bring it along on the trip with me to, to copy. Because that's what I did. A lot of my records stayed in great shape for that reason. My first listen was always to copy it on cassette and then wear that out. So I played the record, but not a whole lot. So I went looking for records and wasn't really seeing a whole lot. So wound up in the tapes and I didn't even know that this record was out. I knew it was coming out, but when I saw it, I flipped because I was like, oh my God. And it was an album called Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. Now, I bought Licensed Ill on record, you know, and thankfully there was no research done by mom. So, and eventually she did hear me listening to it and thought it was awful, but at that point it was too late. But I was just excited that there was a new Beastie Boys record. So, of course, you know, the story about how it's so not Licensed Ill and they went out of their way to not make Licensed Ill Part 2. So Paul's Boutique is what you would call the artistic follow-up. So here's the deal. For people like me and people of my age group and older will realize and, you know, give or take a few years, they'll realize that in our day and age, you bought the record and you kept it and it almost didn't matter if it was good or not. You are committed to this. So if you are only given so much allowance or whatever to buy one record or one tape, Every month, if you luck out, or maybe every other month, you embrace that shit. Like, like I said, at that point, it didn't matter. So I put this thing on. Initially, I'm sort of confused by it. It's not, it, it's weird. I should have probably thought it was weirder than it was. 
but I was just excited to hear the voices doing new rhymes and, and probably saying a few more risque things than I was used to. I didn't even realize what they were rapping about for the most part. I had no idea that Chiba was weed either, by the way, just so you know. Uh, but what happened was I just listened to it. I'm like, huh, that was weird. And, you know, so I'm already on the trip. We're like, you know, an hour into our three-hour journey to get to Arlington, Texas. So I listened to it again. And then I listened to it again. And it's just because of that and because it was my newest tape and I liked the Beastie Boys, I just kept listening to it. And that was a lot of my initial fandom of the album. Because it, it was weird. It wasn't anything I could really share with my friends because they weren't buying it. And even though Hey Ladies was out, it wasn't really a big hit single. So me liking this tape was not helping me out at all with my friends or making me seem even remotely cool. So it was just my own thing. I kept it and I committed to it. And there you go. I, 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 and I've, the cool thing about the tape, by the way, the foldout was huge. I mean, like the vinyl was an eight layer foldout, but like, you could barely read the lyrics, so I had to keep trying to make out the lyrics, and I just got lost. <laughs> and the tape itself was green, like it was a green cassette. It looked so cool. And I played that tape so much, it's one of the only tapes that the spool, like, crashed and fell out. So I had to, like, use a pencil to, like, jab it into the boombox to get it to even work, or, like, slam it really hard so it fit in there still with the thing, like, half broken. But it still worked. And I think it still works to this day, but it's broken. <laughs> but yeah, the first tape I ever wore out was my actual copy of Paul's Boutique. And as years went on, I just kept listening to it. And I've been listening to it pretty much every week since I bought it, you know, on the average, let's say. Just to uh, total up all the listens I've had of it. But yes, I love Paul's Boutique. It's a sampler's paradise. It's it's that era before you really had to pay for the samples. And, you know, and so there was a handful of records that did it afterwards, like De La Soul stuff's a good example of that as well. And they were obviously influenced by it. I remember reading articles years later, all these East Coast guys talking about how they secretly loved this record, but they couldn't admit it to their friends. But it had the best beats on it. The Dust Brothers, who, of course, get co-production credit along with Mario C and the Beastie Boys. This album officially came out July 25th, 1989. It rules. The best thing about it, if you're a music nerd, you could listen to this album over and over again and you'll pull a different sample out of it. Be like, oh, it's that song. Oh, it's that song. And maybe you'll hear that other song later and be like, oh, that's from Paul's Boutique, which is what I've been doing ever since 1989. I'm not going to get cute about this. I'm just going to play the first proper track after the intro to all the girls going right into this one right here. This will get you primed and ready. This is Shake Your Rump. Hey! 
and they can take out Adam Horovitz. Hurricane, we got cloud. Other DJs, put your head out. I'm fucking on the string. I'm baby sing. I'm rhyme. I do my thing. I'm in a lava lamp. It's in my brain. I'm telling why my brain is in the picket. But I rock well. The baby do go. And then I bust the tingle. Got more rhymes than Jamaican got men. I got the pink link. Half the end of my stove bar. Hey, yo, rope. All right, there you go. Shake Your Rump from Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. Absolutely an all-time album for me. Go get it. Go listen to it. Even if you are not a fan of the hip-hop, then you still need to listen to it. Of course, it's very rock-adjacent. Even just the samples alone. But they sample every, I mean, everybody is on this. From the Beatles to Public Enemy, from Johnny Cash to Poison, everything in between. Bob Marley, The Sweet, it's, it's all on there. It's super fun. The Ramones and Alice Cooper. Okay, yes. All right. Moving on. But I will say before I get into the third to last album here of the night. Yeah, of course, License Deal. I love it. Who doesn't love that record? I would also especially recommend Check Your Head, which if you're more of a Paul's Boutique person than a License Deal person, then Check Your Head's definitely a great record as well. But I love those three records especially. Nothing really wrong with the other Beastie Boys records, but those are the three best records, let's be honest. And, you know, there's tons of other rap and hip-hop albums that I've bought over the years that I enjoy and still listen to all the time. Stuff like Paid in Full and Follow the Leader by Eric and Rakim. I mean, what, the first four Public Enemy albums. Uh, all the Cool Keith and his family tree, Dr. Octagon, Dr. Doom, Ultra Magnetic MCs. All of that stuff. Even some of the commercial guys, you know, LL Cool J, talked about the Mama Said Knock You Out record, and uh, hell, man, like, even as a kid, even just for nostalgia's sake, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, he's the DJ, I'm the rapper, I still love that record. Stuff that, you know, stuff by the Fat Boys, you know, like, I, I love that shit, I still love a lot of it. I am an old man in the sense of what hip-hop does for me at this point, don't really like any of it. There's a few shining stars, but mostly a lot of substitute teachers. 
So I'm going to subscribe to the good old day syndrome as far as that genre goes. I do that a lot with all the big subgenres. Punk and metal, I could say the same thing, honestly. But yes, let's get to the next record here. This is easy enough. So these next two albums that I'm going to spotlight here, they're from the same exact year. So they're almost kind of a shared entry in a sense as far as the stories I would have to tell you about it. So I'm not going to talk as long maybe on the second one here. So. But I'm not going to do a twofer, as tempted as I am for time's sake. I'm going to talk about each record individually and what they mean to me. So I mentioned my first best friend ever, Sean George, who used to come around. And we were next door neighbors, which helped a lot. And he got me into the best music and still some of my favorite bands of all time. Whether it's Kiss or Ozzy or this band right here, Van Halen. Man, I mean, how could you not hear Van Halen for the first time at a certain point? At that point, 1984, come on, man. Like, they were the band. And because that record is so good, 1984, yes, it makes it on my Desert Island list here. But man, it's just the record, isn't it? As much as I love Van Halen 1... Obviously, I got to put 84 higher because this is the nostalgia. This is where I came in. You know, they're both perfect albums, but for me in different ways. I I was young enough. God, what was I? Five, if that, when this album was coming out. This came out January 9th, 1984, produced by Ted Templeman. Great producer right there. This is the last of six David Lee Roth albums from their initial run. Six perfect rock albums right there for you for my money. Had no idea about all those other records. I heard Jump on the radio and I lost my mind. And then, man, the follow-ups, Jesus, Panama and Hot for Teacher. My God, perfect rock songs. 1984, Van Halen, Dave, Eddie, Mikey, and Alex. Those guys changed my life. So thanks, Sean. Appreciate that. I was never the same. So yeah, it's just one of those things. If I had been cruising around the 70s when the first Van Halen record was out, I'm sure Van Halen 1 would be in the top 10 of my desert island. But I'm a 1984 kid. Always have been, and I always will be. And nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah, I, I fucking still love the keyboard to this day. I'll wait and jump. Yeah, bring it on every damn time. But man, also, just as a kid that became a big production nerd, this is just a stellar, stellar production I just love the way everything sounds on this record. There's nothing wrong with it. It is a perfect, perfect production. As really, I believe, everything on this list to be. But yeah, this is another one where it's a no-brainer. It's 1984. It's Van Halen. How do you not have this if you're hearing my voice right now? I would be shocked if you have at least never owned this record on some format. And I think my hair was even that bright. I even had like that light blonde hair that the baby smoking angel has on the cover at that point. So I related a lot to this record on a lot of different levels. And it was the first album that I think I had every 45 of. And that's where I got into the B-side culture. So that's where I first learned about how great this song Little Dreamer was off of Van Halen once. So a lot of aspects of this record did a lot for me. And yes, I did have the four-page trifold Hot for Teacher 45. Not the regular picture sleeve, but the poster version. That's how much I love Van Halen. And to this day, and that's why I'm a big freaking Dave guy and will always die on the hill of David Lee Roth. I don't care what he does at this point. He is bulletproof in my eyes, damn it. Rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. You were the greatest absolutely of all time. Fuck Eric Clapton and all of his ilk. Eddie Van Halen is the absolute fucking god of guitar players. He changed everything. He took 
the innovation that Hendrix brought in and was like, you know, your acoustic guitar ain't that cool. Plug in and ride the lightning. So yeah, I mean, what else? Okay, I'm done. I'm done glomming about 1984. You should already know about this. I'm even going to be freaking obvious here because I agree with the Peter Griffin commentary that Baco constantly references. Yes, this is the best Van Halen song, if not the best song ever. And how do you not turn this one up in the car or the headphones to maximum volume? I still don't really know a lot what it's about, but who cares? That's what's great about rock and roll. It just rules. And so does this. Panama.
something I was just reminded of because for me and a lot of other people, you just can't hear that song without picturing the video. And of course, the most iconic shot in the video are all the guys dangling on wire. And uh, on a Roth show from about a decade ago, I remember Dave saying that he stole that idea from when he was a kid and he saw the production of Peter Pan with Mary Martin flying on wires. That's where he got it from. And he said, young forever. And I was like, man, that's exactly how I feel every time I hear Panama or see the video, especially. Yeah, there's that in the back of my mind. Peter Pan, young forever. And that's what 1984 does for me every damn time. Even if I just hear 10 seconds of it, if I'm going to the grocery store and I dump out to the regular radio, it's like I still get a charge out of it. I'm smiling as I'm talking about it. That's how much I love it. Okay. Moving over here, this is a similar kind of entry to what 1984 was. Why? Because it also came out in the same year. So because of 1984, which is the perfect year for music of all time, of all time, this along with 1984 is the album of 1984, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's. I guess I should be a little happier about the fact that, okay, maybe this didn't sell as many copies as Thriller. Not even close. I mean, yeah, of course, no other studio album has sold more copies than Thriller. And we don't count the Eagles' greatest hits because it's a hits collection, also the Eagles. But I'm always like, fuck Thriller, man. Even Chris Rock did an essay about, like, he's like, Thriller's all right, but it's got, like, four filler tunes on there. This album is perfect right here. And this is what he was talking about. He was talking about this album right here, an album that came out on June 25th, 1984. Was it written, arranged, produced, and performed by Prince. Yes, Purple Rain, by Prince and the Revolution. The Revolution, very, very important. Yeah, technically a soundtrack to a film, but you know, you, you know it's a realized album. I mean, come on, there's no score on this. Even let the score off. This was going to be like a double album with other people on it, by the way. It was going to have all these songs on it, and then maybe some of the songs were actually sung by other people. Basically what Graffiti Bridge was later. I'm glad he didn't, obviously, in retrospect, but the song still would have been cool. It would have been a cool release, but Glad he went with the idea of the one album. Been kind of cool to have the sequel album, though, with, like, the time on it and Apollonia and stuff like that. But we got Purple Rain right here. This kind of leans on the Sean George thing again. So I remember specifically, like, used to do, like, pantomime shows and stuff like that. My sister, I'd make her, like, play music video with me or something like that. That, that That's me. I've been doing this since I was two people. So... Sean used to come over, and I remember, I guess, maybe he ta- either he taped it off the radio or he had the real tape of 1999 by Prince and the Revolution, which uh, this is definitely a shared entry. I mean, I hold 1999 almost as in high regard as I do Purple Rain, but for the benefit of having a list, it's Purple Rain here for me. But man, when he put on, I think it was the title track that I first heard. So I first heard 1999 by Prince. I was like, Wow. I never heard anything like that. And it was everything. It was it was a little hard rock. It was new wave. It was pop. It was just everything. It was a party song. And then I heard Little Red Corvette later. I was like, man, this is the best song ever. So yeah, like Sean turning me on to the stuff from 1999 definitely had an influence. But man, by the time Purple Rain came out, I was ready for it. And this is definitely truly the first album I had every 45 from. And Prince will definitely get you into the B-side culture have all these unique songs that weren't on the record at all. So you have all these new songs. It was just the most. It's still the most. And Purple Rain should absolutely be the high watermark. It should be the greatest selling album of all time. If you ask me, I'm thinking about what has the most mass appeal out of anything on this list. 
And I truly feel like Purple Rain should be the best-selling album of all time. But since it's not, it kind of still gets to be a little cool, you know? So, I mean, we have that going for us, which I'll get into a little bit more on the next entry right here. Uh, But yeah, as Fox Mulder once famously said, great record, but a flawed movie. And, you know, of course, I still enjoy watching the movie. It's not a great movie. But it's fun to watch the performances. And I like it. And Morris Day kind of saves some of the uh, acting for sure. So Because he wants to see some asses wiggling. He demands perfection. Something like that. And the fact that I'm saying this about Van Halen 1984 and Prince's Purple Rain, when I say these are the two best albums, possibly of all time, but also definitely of 1984, that's saying something. Because like I said before, 1984 is the greatest year ever for music in general. Go look at the Hot 100 every week in the year 1984. You will see everything on there. And not just on the principle of variety, but it doesn't hurt either. But almost every song on there is a great song. And like I said, I just love that everybody's invited to the party. Every subgenre exists in the pop charts in 1984. And it was never that way before or after. That's why it's the best year. But the proof's also in the music. And the proof is definitely in the music of these records right here. I am going to go a little obnoxiously deep for Purple Rain because, I mean, let's just do it, man. Because, you know, it's a hard rock show, whatever you want to call it. I do play other stuff from time to time or a lot of the time. But I'm picking this one. It's the heaviest song on the album, in my opinion, because it gets into a really deep thing here, especially during the solo section. So just in case you haven't heard the record and hang your head in shame, if you haven't yet, in a world of today with streaming, how have you not? Anyway. But getting back to Purple Rain, yes, this one right here, the overall heaviest song on the record, just slightly after Let's Go Crazy, this is Computer Blue. Wendy? Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa.
There you go. That's my manual fade there, as tempting as it was to listen to Darling Nikki right after that. But, uh, yeah, you got to get the record. Buy the record. How many times have I owned that? I don't know. Same thing with Stay Hungry in 1984 and a few of these other records. Of definitely every format. Multiple times over on vinyl. Uh, multiple times on CD, because thanks to remastering. And, and thankfully we got remastering on some of these things after a while. Yes, Computer Blue manual fade aside you know and i i don't say this in any kind of negative or disparaging way at all but doesn't that song seem longer than four minutes that song is three minutes and 58 seconds all the stuff he crams into that in that little amount of time i mean wow i mean yeah you understand purple rain the album version is like what about seven eight minutes and he got all that done in four i mean that's incredible like, there's so much going on on that song, but there's so much going on on the whole record. Anyway, a fun fact, if you didn't know, the, the entire B-side, after Wind Doves Cry, the entire B-side of Purple Rain is all live. They're all one-takers. So, yeah, because he's a ridiculous man. Rest in peace, Prince. Man, a lot of, I, we, we could have done a lot more rest in pieces throughout this whole list, but I didn't want to, you know, make it a downer show. But, I mean, you can't talk about Prince without acknowledging the fact that he's not on this plane, at least. But, man, what's that meme going around nowadays to where people put themselves over? Like, you know, the world's billions of years old. It's at least 100 billion years old or whatever, and we existed in a time during Eddie Van Halen. Or we existed in a time during Prince or Bowie. It's like, yeah, we are some fortunate freaking people, man, so recognize all right and another person i'm very happy that i lived in the age of it's the last guy we're going to talk about here and of course how was i not going to put this person on anything pertaining to what i would call a desert island list major asterisk on this entry by the way i'm just going to say it right up front because if i was doing a true desert island list i let's say out of a top 20 Probably seven or eight of this guy's records would occupy the top 20. But for the sake of that not happening, basically picking this one artist who is my favorite artist of all time. But my first favorite record of this guy is what I'm putting here as my entry. Now, like I said, this is a shared entry for sure. So let's talk about it. Yes, going to get into some Alice Cooper right here. And the album. Anybody want to pre-guess? Anyone? Anyone? Pre-guess? Well, this album came out on March 11th, 1975, produced by Bob Ezrin. I know that's not a big hint. <laughs> the year was more so than the producer, for, right? Right? Okay. But this was my first favorite album by this gentleman, and that's why it's on my entry once again. And it's a great top-to-bottom record. It's the only quote-unquote concept record on my list. It's Alice's first solo record, Welcome to My Nightmare. Is this my favorite album of all time? It has resembled that remark over the years. In and out, I will say it's constantly shared a tie a lot of the times with Purple Rain and really 1984. I'd say these three records are my three favorite records easily of all time. That's where I am today with it. Now, the shared entry I'm giving this is with a lot of Alice records. And of course, a lot of the initial original Alice Cooper group records, the big four, if you will, Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies. Love me some muscle of love, love me some easy action, but I'm definitely putting those other four in this shared entry, and probably honestly along with From the Inside, which I love a lot, and Dada, I mean, just big on those, and what a lot of those records have in common is Dick Wagner, who co-wrote those other three aforementioned records with Alice and Bob Ezrin, and you know, Dick's very important to the history of Rock Strikes 10, he's one of the bigger names that I've ever interviewed, 
Still my favorite episode, probably ever, of Rock Strikes 10. The hour he spent on the phone with me, hour and a half, I guess. You know, we edited it down a little bit, a little conversation before and after. But yeah, I miss that guy. But yeah, this record he created with Alice, it's just, it was the first Alice record that I bought where I was like, man, it's going to become my favorite record of all time. It just is. Listen to it all the time. It doesn't have to be Halloween for me to watch the TV special, but it doesn't hurt either. But I'll watch it anytime. And yeah, it's another one of those albums. The concept gives way to the TV special, which is basically just the album in video format. So there's a video basically for every song on this record. So it makes it a fun, cool, interactive record to have. And it's just great. It's a journey. It's just one of my favorite records ever. I don't really have a lot to say about it. You just got to put it on and play it top to bottom. Always make sure you set aside 43 minutes and 19 seconds to get into the thing as a whole without distractions. And it just gives that extra layer to it. So I recommend doing that. If you've never heard this album top to bottom, make sure you do it undisturbed with the headphones on. It's heavily recommended. As much as I think everything on this record is perfect, I think for the last few years my favorite song has been The Black Widow, so I'm going to play that as the representative for this record. But in my opinion, you can't have Black Widow without Devil's Food, and a lot of people think that might be cheating, saying they're two separate songs. I'm like, no, they belong together. They act together on the record as one song, so I'm going with it. It's my show. This is one song, damn it. Even though it says it's two separate tracks, I don't buy it. You'll hear it for yourself if you've never heard it. Know that I'm right here, by the way, and I'm not cheating on Rock Strikes 10. 500 episodes in, I have figured out how to do this, I promise. So, yes, to represent the album that's in a 10-way tie with my favorite albums of all time, a lot of other Alice records in 84 and Purple Rain and stuff like that, but this one right here, check it out. To finish off the show tonight, we've got Devil's Food right into Black Widow. Another spirit on the road. Hey, 
doctor. Uh, please don't touch the displays, little boy. <laughs> oh, cute. Uh, moving to the next aisle, we have Arachnid. Uh, the spiders, our finest collection. This friendly little devil is the Heptathilidae, unfortunately harmless. Next to him, the nasty Lycosa Raptoria. His tiny fangs cause creeping ulcerations of the skin. <laughs> and here, my prize, the Black Widow. Isn't she lovely and so deadly? Her kiss is 15 times as poisonous as that of the rattlesnake. <laughs> you see, her venom is highly neurotoxic, which is to say that it attacks the central nervous system, <laughs> causing intense pain, profuse sweating, difficulty in breathing, loss of consciousness, violent convulsions, and finally, uh, death. You know, I think what I love the most about her is her inborn need to dominate possess. In fact, immediately after the consummation of her marriage to the smaller and weaker male of the species, she kills and eats him. Oh, she is delicious. <laughs> and I hope he was. Such power and dignity, unhampered by sentiment. If I may put forward a slice of personal philosophy, I feel that man has ruled this world as a stumbling, demented child king long enough. And as his empire crumbles, my precious Black Widow shall rise as his most fitting successor. These words he speaks are true. We're all humanary stew. We don't pledge allegiance to the Black Widow. The horror that he'll bring. The horror of his sting. The unholiest of kings. The Black Widow. Our minds will be his toy. Every girl and boy will learn to be employed. The Black Widow.
days like a black widow. These things he says are true. We're all human Aries too. If we don't pledge allegiance to the black widow. Closing off this show here today, closing off episode 500 of Rock Strikes 10, which also happens to be the show where I do my top 10 favorite records of all time, representing Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper, along with special guest Vincent Price. Thriller who? What? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. That album came out seven years before Thriller. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to do the whole, you think that should have sold more records than Thriller. And I'm kind of like, you know, you know, actually, I always would complain over the years about how Alice isn't like a more iconic, revered figure in rock history. And yes, he is both of those things. But he's not like this superstar that's like unattainable superstar. I feel like even though Alice is the character, that he is a real person, and he's still ours. And that's really the cool thing about it so I, I don't lament anymore about how Alice plays theaters and like half-size sheds because that's kind of what makes him cool he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame but it doesn't even matter that he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to a point because this is a guy that'll still give you a great show he's very fan friendly especially when it comes to his set list so if he was playing sold out arenas every tour yeah I'm sure the money would be great and he's done that before but I feel like he wouldn't throw in those cool nuggets every tour and stuff like that. He wouldn't feel the need to constantly change his stage show. He still works very hard for his fans and always has the best band, of course. That Welcome to My Nightmare band, which kind of morphed into the first version of what was called the Hollywood Vampires. They just sound really great on there. And of course, the original Alice Cooper group is probably the best band ever assembled. I've played some of the other best bands ever assembled, so I'm not going to go down that whole thing, but... The Alice Cooper group should be as revered as the Beatles or the Stones or Zeppelin, in my opinion. That's just a fact. They're that good. They were that good. And they wrote as great of timeless songs as any of those other bands ever did. So there. Fact. (laughs) All right. Like I said, I hope you enjoyed the long ones. This was a long one. I felt the need to give you a little bit extra something here. It's episode 500. I should make a big deal out of it, right? And I finally committed to my Desert Island list. That being said, it will change tomorrow. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'd, And God, I could take the time to talk about all the also-rans. But you, if you listen to this show, you probably know what they are. Of course, you're going to be like, wow, I'm surprised I didn't hear this band or that band or something super obvious. But like I said, 
that's going to be reserved for some of the other lists I do here down the road. And sooner than later, I'm not going to wait another 500 episodes to do them. But at some point, I will do a Desert Island list of my 10 favorite live albums, my 10 favorite best ofs, which people don't do those, but I'm going to, and 10 favorite box sets. All things that you think you would realistically take on a desert island if that was going to be a scenario that you were involved in. So yes, I'm going to do those. I encourage you all to do that as well. Maybe at some point I'll have you out there listening, have you on and have you come on and do your desert island list. A few people have done it over the years. Those of you who have taken the time to do it, I greatly appreciate that. You are a friend of mine. I'm always going to love you. And hopefully we'll get some people of note and just people that I dig to come on the show and do it down the road. I I was hoping to do it more at this point in the show's history than I have. So that's my resolution for the next 500 episodes. Let's get some more damn Desert Island lists going on. Let's have a good time with it. Oh, and I almost forgot one last major thing before I get out of here today. In case this is your first episode or it's your first one in a long time. I still appreciate you. I just want to let you know what's going on here with Rock Strikes 10. Got big things doing here. I've been doing all these crazy retro reviews for the last couple of years on the show, picking certain years that were, you know, at big points of 30th anniversaries, 40th anniversaries, 20th anniversaries. Those are continuing. Already this year, did a big one on 1972. And going to take care of some more odds and ends of 2022 on the next couple of episodes. Play catch up on that. And then we're going to get right into the big 1982 retrospective. So that should be a lot of fun. So just stay tuned throughout the year. Got best of 92 coming up. And before the end of the year, best of 2002. And still going to make time to do the best albums of 2022. And between all that, some holiday episodes, some fun old school themes. Should be a lot of fun. So stick with me here. And before we get into my final say here. Just wanted to give an extra thanks, love, appreciation, praises, whatever you want to say, to two people especially. First to the CFCNJ, my best friend and my brother Chris. No you, no show. I've said this a lot in the sense of I have these weird ideas and thoughts and I've had a lot of them over the years. He can attest to that. But this was the one thing that we were able to make a reality in a lot of ways starting off doing the Wrestling House show and me also starting Rock Strikes 10. I still enjoy doing both of those things, and you're a big reason for that, Chris. And you are the guy who got the show off the ground, technically, from all those standpoints, but also the inspiration as well. So thank you for everything you've done for me and continue to do for me and letting me bug you when I need it in any kind of way, whether it's professionally or personally. I love you, man. Thank you so much. You know how much you mean to me. And I'm glad you do. <laughs> also, I uh, would like to also say, like, you know, the end of CNJ, my better half, Nola, just all the inspiration, all the love. Man, my life would suck without you so much. And she knows that. And I know it. And that's why we get along so well. I'd say this to anybody out there, whether you're not in a relationship, getting into a relationship, or even currently in a marriage, don't ever compromise your happiness. That doesn't mean being selfish. It just means don't compromise your happiness. If you are not in any kind of perfect position from a personal standpoint, and you're not having any kind of fun, don't waste another day of your life in a bad situation. Do not settle for less. You find that perfect person for you, no matter who it is, and make them happy. Because that'll make you happy. All right. 
And we're going to get to Nola now. So stay tuned for my aforementioned better half, Nola. She does the plugs so well. It's a lot of people's favorite part of the show, by the way. So here she is with the plugs, followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. You know it to be true by Pete LaRusso and Spacebeard. Take it away, Nola. Thanks again. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10 and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have RockStrikes10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high quality, soft as heck, next level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl Podcast with Pete LaRusa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on SiriusXM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it.